So as we dig into the passage that we have for this week, um, I have been thinking for a, a several weeks now on this passage, and the thing, the theme that has been coming to my mind is this phrase, ministry of presence. Um, I woke in the middle of the night, just this, we got to sing about it. Thank you, Lisa um, and Maggie. Um, presence, God's presence was just this overwhelming theme that you'll hear me say a lot today. But it caused me to think of a de- this devotional um, that is written by a woman named Jill Briscoe. Some of us feel like she's our friend. Um, if you were, happen to come to IF Gathering this year, you, you got to hear Jill Briscoe preach. Um, maybe you've been familiar with her for, for years. She's an 85-year-old, I think 85-year-old missionary. She and her husband and her son have been on the mission field um, at home and abroad for, for her whole life. And um, she talks about a ministry of presence. And there's actually a chapter in this book that I went and looked when, when I realized that that's what I kept thinking. I went and looked and found a chapter called Ministry of Presence. And I'm not going to read it to you, but she tells of how she... Um, how she often will wrestle with God about going out and going into the places where he's called her. He has called her into places that are at war and unrest. And um, she tells a story about one particular time when she had this opportunity to go to Croatia and Serbia. Um, There was a war on and there were refugees and there was an opportunity to go meet with refugee women. And she was just, Lord, I I don't think you're calling me. Maybe someone else will go. It's not really convenient. Does anybody do this? <laughs> I do. <laughs> um, and God just, as she, she says, um, she meets with him on the steps of her soul is how she explains her quiet time with God. And he kept just putting it, I think I want you to go. I want you to go. And her saying, no, I don't think so. And finally, she said, all right, I'll go. Um, and she took with her uh, about 10 women that, and they as they're traveling there, these women asked her as their leader, what are we supposed to do there? What do we say to these women? Why are we coming? And she's like, tell them I just had to come. I just had to come. And so they show up, and they're not quite sure what this is going to look like. And on day two, it's going fine. On day two, she asked her interpreter to go around and just listen. What are the women talking about with these refugee women? And the interpreter came back and said, Jill, it's crazy. They're all saying the same thing. <laughs> they're all saying, I just had to come. I just had to come. And Jill said, well, what are the women saying back? Well, they're all saying, you came. You came. And um, that just keeps striking me because uh, that is what we got to see in our passage, right? What God did. And his presence was with the Israelites. And we get to dig into that today and see how the God of the universe who came in creation because he wanted to be with his people, actually came in a tangible, finite way, which blows our minds, right? We'll look about at that, and we'll talk about it, but it still just blows our minds. Uh, it's too much for me to take in, to be honest. Um, but as we do take it in, and we ponder this presence that he has with us, I pray that we will begin to grasp this truth, that is, that the presence of God in the tabernacle was made complete in Jesus and shines in the world today through Christ followers. That's us. 
So with this in mind, like I said, you'll hear me talk about presence, ministry of presence, God's presence a lot today. Um, That's definitely the the heavy theme. (laughs) Uh, We will look first at God's presence provided in the tabernacle and then at God's presence in relationship. So first, let's remember where we left off, off last week now, or actually two weeks ago when we gathered. It was a snow day, so we didn't gather. So hopefully you had an opportunity to listen to the message on podcast. Marianne was able to share in the evening class, so it is available. And if you didn't have a chance, it might really help you kind of put some of this big picture stuff together for you to go back and listen. Um, it helped me <laughs> when I listened. So where we left off was that Israel was at the base of Mount Sinai. Prior to this moment, we know that God was operating with his people based on the Abrahamic covenant, which basically meant that God's presence was offered without any requirement from the people. Um, They were his people. But then in giving the Ten Commandments and now the instruction of the tabernacle, he was establishing this new covenant, the Mosaic covenant. From this moment forward, he is re- he's, it's not just enough to be in the line of Abraham and therefore God's people, which they were, but there was now a requirement in order to be considered God's set-apart people. The Israelites had to now obey some laws and make some sacrifices, which we'll see in our passage today as a kingdom of priests. He was setting up a new system, a system of sacrifices that was essentially saying, if you do these things that I outline, I will bless you. Being in relationship with the Most Holy God would now be contingent upon their faith and their obedience. And so upon receiving the laws, the people were in. You might remember from chapter 24, twice we read that it said something along the lines of, so Moses came and told the people the Ten Commandments, the words of the Lord and the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then a few verses later they say, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. So they were in. They were emphatically in. They agreed to this new covenant. Then God called Moses into his presence. And he entered, chapter 24, 18 says that Moses entered a cloud and went up on the mountain and was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And it was here that God shared his plan for his holy dwelling place, which is where we are today, the tabernacle. It's here that this new system was given. So we're going to take a look at this tabernacle, and I've chosen to just pull out some some of the themes, the biblical themes, um, and and there will be, we will take a quick brush over all of the, some of the components, it's not an exhaustive list, of the tabernacle. I have a few visual aids, a few pictures that might give us some idea to prompt our imagination in trying to get our heads around this tabernacle presence. Um, But first, I I hope, I think, um, I've come up with a just a few words that will help focus our conversation. So the tabernacle will highlight the following about God. His divinity, his dwelling, his design, and the great divide that exists between God and man. So his divinity, let's start there. In chapter 25, 3 through 7, we read that gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hairs, tanned ram skins, goat skin, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and the fragrant incense, onyx stone, stones for setting. So we see gold and jewels and flowers and fruit and cherubim later in that passage. It's designed to be reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. Some of you may have seen that. It's, it sounds beautiful, doesn't? Just 
perfect as only God could design in his divinity. Only he could imagine something so beautiful. And so above all, I think we see that the Israelites and readers throughout all of time are to be reminded of God's divinity and holiness. Above all, not just in the materials that are provided, but in what we're going to see in in his dwelling and in his design. It's to be a reminder of a time when God's creation and his presence with man was unblemished. So next, we'll look at his dwelling. So again, we look back to creation. It causes us to look back to that moment when God existed with man, when he reached down in and wanted to dwell with man uh, when he created. Additionally, in today's text, we see that the word says in chapter 25, 8, it says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And then verse 22, it says, there I will meet with you and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So when you imagine, I'm imagining these 2.5 million people who have not too long ago fled Egypt, been delivered. Now they're wandering in the desert, and there's a lot of them. And they, they were slaves before, right? So their skill is in brick making. And um, God, in his kind, I feel, I, I picture them very just maybe confused, a little bit fearful about now, now what's going to happen next. And God is providing. We see that he's providing manna and quail and water and He's providing, but, but they still don't know what the plan is, right? So that's what he's doing. By establishing the, the Ten Commandments, he's really teaching them how to operate under his law. In his kindness, they, they need these new parameters, and he knew that he, they needed his presence with them in a tangible form. And so we think about how we talked in Leader Circle about, wait a minute, I mean, infinite God is trying to come and be in a finite form, with his people, that to me is just such a gift, such a kindness that he's extending. So he gave them his presence for all to see. And the way that it operated, his presence operated in this tabernacle, we later read at the very end of Exodus in chapter 40, 40, 36 through 38, it actually explains how his presence dwelled with them. So it says throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Can you even imagine? All these 2.5 million people could see this thing, this place. You know, you imagine they, they might probably had their dwelling places, tents perhaps, but this comfort that would be given to them by just God giving his presence in a tangible form um, was profound. It was a, such an act of kindness and grace. And as I, as I was researching and reading and listening, um, someone called it um, all the glory of God in this portable mini Eden. So it was this gorgeous <laughs> structure that he, only he could design, and it was portable. <laughs> Did, I, it moved. They had to move for 40 years throughout the, throughout the wilderness. So only God could come up with that, right? So then that takes us to think about the, his design. I think it's significant that Moses didn't design this. He couldn't come up with this plan for a, 
for a holy sanctuary. It was God's design for his dwelling place. So in 25.9, it says, Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all of its furniture, so you shall make it. And then we read in chapter 40, According to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. So in this, God is showing Israel that his worship occurs according to his pattern, not the pattern of the world. Even then, they knew, oh, this is different. We don't get to make up how we're going to do this thing. We have a God who's going to tell us how to worship him, how to live. He is the most holy God, and he must be approached according only to his word, not anything designed by culture or the world. That was true then, and it's true now. His design for the tabernacle included specific materials, skilled labor, detailed instructions, and organization of roles and responsibilities, as well as the provision of all of this, right? He had to provide all of it. So he, God had to direct all of this in his power. So I actually included just a few pictures that might come up on the screen. Um, you had one in your study that gave you a little idea of, of one way that someone uh, thinks the tabernacle might have looked. This is actually a replica that was is built in Israel at this park. It's a public park called Timna Park, and there's it's not necessarily a Christian park, It's or uh, and, and there's not other biblical things there I don't know, that I know of, but this gives you an idea of maybe the size that it was. This does not use the materials that were laid out in the Bible, but I thought it was interesting just to see what kind of a visual, um, what someone has thought that it would look like. The next is actually a, a piece of art that was done in 1728, and if you can see it, which you may not be able to see some of the detail, it depicts this potentially 2.5 million people intense living around where they're building this tabernacle and it depicts the jobs that everybody had and how they might have assembled it or disassembled it in order to move to the next place um, with with Moses here right at the place where they're building the um, mercy seat so both again are someone's imagination of how this might have looked. Um, your imagination probably can take lots of different directions too. Uh, we don't actually know exactly what it looked like, um, but it is specific. So the first thing that we can, in order to look at his design, we can see, again, I read earlier the list of items that were used, gold, silver, bronze, acacia wood. The fact that these are all tangible materials makes it feel so real to me. These are actual materials that we know today in many cases, although I don't really know what acacia wood is. Um, <laughs> someone here probably does. I, also, in chapter 36, 3 through 7, it explains that God provided all of this. So what we got to see at the very beginning of chapter 25 is that God told Moses on the mountain, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go back down and you're going to ask for contributions from the people as their hearts would stir in them, as they felt led to give. Isn't that neat? The people were, had a significant part in this. And then God provided so much that later we read that Moses had to say, all right, enough of the contributions. We have too many. <laughs> Isn't that like God? Just abundance. But when you think about how these people had just come across the Red Sea, but before they left, God had given provision for them to plunder the Egyptians. So they had apparently all of the, these materials that they'd brought with them enough so that God's plan, of course God knew that he was going to use it for his glory later. So 
these people had, they had everything they needed in abundance to create this beautiful place for God to dwell. It's so supernatural. It, it's so beyond what any man could have come up with on his own. So also it required skilled labor. Remember the Israelites were skilled in brick making as slaves, not craftsmanship that would build this holy temple. Um, chapter 31, 1 through 5 says that the Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones for setting and in carving wood to work in every craft. So it was God's Spirit in these men that gave them the ability to do any of this labor. Again, just incredible. It, it, and it causes me, of course, to think about us. There's so many things we can look forward and take away for our own selves. I'm trying to keep us focused on what was going on then. But, of course, he gives all skills. He gives all things. He gives all materials and abilities to, to be used for his glory. So it was God's spirit given. And all ability to men that they make all that I have commanded them. So God built the tabernacle through these men. He gave detailed instruction. He clearly explained exactly what was to be built, how to build it, where to place it, how it would be used, and who would do the work. He gave order to their work by giving a a blueprint. Imagine all of these people trying to figure out who was going to do what if God didn't just tell them exactly. That could have been complete chaos. So thank the Lord that Moses came down and said, here's what's going to happen. We just have to follow the rules. God was so good and kind in that. He gave assignments to the priesthood, Aaron's line. He gave assignments to the craftsmen. And in the last five chapters of Exodus, we read about how they were able to carry this through exactly as it had been given to them, which is a miracle when you imagine the level of detail that was given. So God is a God of order, and his design is beyond anything that man could come up with. And he was establishing the way that he was going to operate with his people. So all of this, I think, wraps up into one big great example or, um, or spotlight being on how holy our God is and how fallen man is. The fact that a tabernacle had to be built that actually had so many components and rules and regulations and sacrifices that we'll talk about in a minute in order for man, man to, to enter in with God. God is so holy, so blameless, so in, to be worshipped in his glory that man had to be given such instruction to be able to enter in at this point. So his provision of the tabernacle was and is forever representative of what I keep calling the great divide. In these chapters, we see that God's providing his presence for his people, revealed in his character, to them as an example for future generations in a very tangible form. But ironically, at that same moment, you probably all had a similar reaction as I did when you opened the next few chapters, uh, we saw that Moses, while Moses was receiving these blueprints from God, the folks down at the bottom of the hill were having just a, an epic fail. They were crafting the golden calf and worshiping it as a little g god and attributing attributes of the holy god to this golden calf and god saw that it was happening at this at the, right at the same time it was just the i mean it, it was just this 
slap in the face to God. And yet he provided, and there was a lot of back and forth um, that we saw there, but we, that divide that we see so ironically at the exact same time as we're reading these chapters was this tangible way of knowing that vast chasm between holy God and fallen man. The details, the specific instructions, the need for constant sacrifice all pointed to the ways that man would never be able to repair what had been done in the garden with sin. So this is where the system of sacrifice is established with Israel, and it all is a foreshadow to the redemptive plan that God had in Jesus. So let's look at some of these components of the tabernacle and talk about how they might point forward to, or they do point forward to, Jesus. So the Ark of the Testimony is where I thought we'd start, and that's where the Ten Commandments were put inside. And the Ten Commandments, of course, were the summary of the moral law that they were expected now to live by. They, and, and then, of course, constantly represented the fact that they would fail at living perfectly by this moral law. The mercy seat was the golden cover of the ark, the place where blood was, that was sacrificed was to be placed. This is where the people would receive atonement for their sin. Of course, we look forward to how Jesus was the atonement for our sin once and for all. But for these folks who, who lived before Jesus, this was what they had to depend on in order to receive any kind of atonement for their sin with the holy God. The bread, the table of bread, or the bread of the presence, was it represented the 12 tribes of Israel and the, with 12 loaves of bread, and in that way God provided for the priesthood as well. The lampstand was, of course, basic light for the priests to work, so it was very functional, otherwise it would be very dark. Um, but it also harkened back to the tree of life in the garden and foreshadowed the fact that Jesus would be the light of the world. The bronze altar is where sacrifices, daily sacrifices, were made. People could only approach by means of a bloody sacrifice and repeatedly, over and over, lamb after lamb, morning and night, in a very specific way. Um, But it had to be always before them that bringing a lamb was not actually going to atone for their sin, which was a, a spiritual issue. So it pointed forward, of course, to the time when a once-and-for-all sacrifice would be provided in Jesus. The veil, we talked in Leader's Circle this morning about this veil being this massive curtain that, that I, is hard for me to even imagine that hung between the holy, holy of Holies and the Holy Place. And it was only priests, after their ritual of ceremonial cleaning, could enter in, and in that... I'm sure they were scared. (laughs) Um, It foreshadows, of course, to when Jesus, on the cross, the veil is torn in two. And now there is not a dividing wall for man to enter in. The priests. Israel was already a kingdom of priests. They were were God's chosen people. But again, there was the... Aaron's line was chosen as the priests for all of Israel. They were the mediator, the bridge... Um, that, of course, foreshadowed to Jesus as our bridge into relationship with God. Altar of incense represents the prayer of God's people, which was continual back then and continual now. 
So all, of course, this is not an exhaustive list of the components. If you look at pictures and you read the detail, there are other things that can spotlight God's holiness um, and, and truly represent how much needed to be done in this new system of sacrifice. But the truth I think we can take away in this is that God's divinity, his dwelling, his design, all were given in this tabernacle, the establishment of the tabernacle, and all were given as a bridge over the great divide caused by sin. So for Israel, these, these components were a gift. God existed, had a presence with them, a ministry of presence with them that allowed them to move forward in hope in, in the way that they had to at that time because they didn't yet have Jesus. So all of God's glory dwelled with them. So the question I have for you that maybe we can all reflect on is how does studying the provision of that tabernacle cause you to worship a holy God? I've found that as I've thought about all all of these components and I've thought about these biblical themes that we pick up and how all of them are gonna be made complete in Jesus, it just causes me to worship. And I hope that it does for you as well. The great divide was, the divide was great between the, our holy God and a fallen man, and yet he entered in in his kindness. So then we are going to take a look at God's presence in relationship. And first we get to see that with God and Moses. So Exodus 32 depicts the Israelites failing miserably, which we already mentioned, <laughs> as they built a golden calf and began worshiping it, saying to Aaron, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. And thus it began. The people stepped out in disobedience even before Moses was down the hill. (laughs) It's so quick for that I can go, oh, why did they do that? Can you even believe it? And yet, and yet, (laughs) um, how quickly we do something similar. So God's response was wrath and determination to eliminate them. In 32.9, he says, I've seen this people, and behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great, and make a great nation of you. So he's saying to Moses, let's start over. Let's just leave those guys, and you and I will go forward. Um, that, I don't know that I'd ever really grasped like I did this, this time around going, oh, wow, praise God that Moses had that relationship. Um, God would have gotten glory however he intended, right? But Moses entered in. Moses had been meeting with God. He was the one that kept going up the mountain into that cloud. He was the one that had relationship with God. We saw that in this moment... Moses implored the Lord on behalf of his people, reminding him of his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, reminding him of the way that he delivered them from Egypt, and appealing to his reputation against, amongst other nations. So in that moment, he said, wait, but all these other nations saw that you just, you led your people out, and now that you would, you would eliminate them? What will that what will people think? (laughs) And he reminded him of his promises. And so God relented from bringing disaster on them in that moment. But we do see later that there are consequences because now, remember, they lived under the Mosaic law. So there were things that happened that were somewhat disturbing if you read those details, (laughs) Um, including a plague 
that they had escaped previously in Egypt. Now they had a consequence. So the place where I would like to pick up in order to just really spotlight God's presence in relationship is in chapter 33, 12. Um, It This is where um, we get to see God's presence with Moses, where they are having a conversation. Um, And I will will give some of those passages in just a minute. But numerous times before, we read about the conversations that God had had with Moses, that um, Moses had learned to trust God in his ways, and now we see that he engaged with this God whom he knew. He knew. They knew each other intimately. God had given his presence, but time and again, Moses chose to go. He went up the mountain to the very top where nobody else was invited to go. He boldly interceded on behalf of his disobedient people, even to the point of trying to offer himself as a sacrifice for their sins. A bit more foreshadowing. He, he was a Christ figure, although God wasn't quite ready for that part of the plan to come like he was when it, his plan was Jesus. That great divide that we talked about earlier was so great for Moses, and he was the one called to straddle the tension between the most holy God and the disobedient Israelites. So he sounds desperate in these, in these verses, in this conversation with God. He knows that without God's presence with him, there'd be no hope for a future for him or Israel. He has a long-standing relationship with God, and he's learned to trust him with everything. So at this moment, when the disobedience was so great, Moses engaged with his father. And in 33, 15, we see him saying, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? And then in 17, God says, This very thing that you've spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses later said, please show me your glory. God knew Moses by name. They had a relationship. And then God did it. God did it. In 34, 5 through 7, it says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means clear the guilty. So Moses experienced God's presence in relationship. He had a ministry of presence with Moses. You know, over the last two or three weeks, I have felt so profoundly God's presence with me in some circumstances in our life that, um, that just God carried, and it felt so obvious Maybe you've had those when it's like, oh, he just directed me so clearly there. And oh, he, my, his peace. And then I hit this weekend, and I felt like I was having one of these conversations with God <laughs> that Moses just had. I was having this kind of conversation um, over this message, to be honest, because it was just way too much for me to get my head around. <laughs> there are so many things, and it's so important. And so just yesterday... As my kids were home from school, I was spending the entire day um, in this message and in this truth. Um, my conversation probably looked a little bit like this. God, I can't do this. <laughs> Actually, it's too big. It's really too important. That's too deep. It's all about you. You're too holy. I'm not. <laughs> that chasm, that great divide was very apparent. Um, so you asked me to do this. I said yes, and now it's going to be impossible unless your presence goes with me. So it was very similar, it felt like, to Moses. But praise God 
first thing in the morning, he reminded me of this piece of the passage because um, he took me right to what he wanted me to first learn and trust and also maybe what you need to hear today as well. Um, This is the relationship that Moses had and as I am desperately holding on to his presence. Sometimes it feels like he's with me. Sometimes it's profound and it's, it's um, such a gift. Maybe, you know, sometimes it looks like the cloud that's going with the Israelites and other times it feels like I have to beg for it. Um, and it's probably having to do with my own heart, right? He's always there. So you, I cling to the truth that his presence is with me in the times when it doesn't feel like it. And I trust that he is. So God promised his presence, and then his glory proclaimed to Moses that day in the cleft of the rock, and he got to experience him in that way. And, and that's what this is for me here today. Don't you want to have a relationship like Moses, where you can talk with him and intercede and implore and bask in his glory while tucked in the crevice of a rock? <laughs> um, praise God. It's exactly what we do have in Jesus. The relationship we've been granted through Jesus and the blood of Christ is exactly that. Unlike the Israelites, our place in history has us living on this side of the cross with Christ in a new covenant. And so we get to now experience a relationship that Jesus has with us, that God has with us through Jesus. Jesus was given as a gift, Emmanuel, a baby born to be God with us. His presence was a sinless human tabernacle given by God for all of humanity. John 1, 4 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. All of the requirements set out for Israel in the details of this tabernacle, establishment of the priests, and the blood of the sacrifices were all made complete in Jesus. Hebrews 9, 11 through 14, it's a, it's a large passage, and you looked at it this week, but it's so profound, I want us to read it. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serving the living God. So we could look back at each component of the tabernacle down to the detail. We touched on some of it and see the ways that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection completely satisfied. Jesus is the light of the world. He is the bread of life. 1 John 1, 7 says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So all who have faith in Jesus, the Son of God, is in relationship with God. Praise God. The truth is that in Jesus, God's holy presence came to dwell amongst mankind and provide atonement for sin once and for all. And can you see how if we didn't understand the system of sacrifice that was required to enter into the holy of holies with the most holy God, we wouldn't be able to really grasp or or appreciate what Jesus came to do. So do you have a relationship with, Mo- with God like Moses did through faith in Jesus? 
No longer do God's people have to offer blood sacrifices through a priest in a holy, holy tabernacle. A decision to have faith that Jesus loves you and wants to have a relationship with you is all that it takes to make, make one step closer to him. Or maybe a conversation with God similar to the one that Moses had, that you cry out for his presence to be with you, like I had yesterday. In my experience, God welcomes these conversations with his children, whether it's the first time, as some of you may be sitting there thinking, or after years of walking with him, he wants to provide his presence. And maybe you're sitting out there, and this is all very new. Maybe this, this conversation about sacrifices and atonement and blood, maybe it's a little much for you to take in. That would be understandable. And if so, I really hope that you'll find someone to talk to that's maybe just a, a smidge ahead of you in the, in the faith journey with Jesus because it, it's important. It's worth talking about. It's worth asking the questions, and God can handle it, and he wants to meet with you even if it's too much to, for you right now. Um, so I hope that you will dig in. I hope that we all will. The truth is that faith in Jesus allows him to have a ministry of presence with you by his spirit. And then the last relationship where we get to see God's presence is with Christ followers and non-believers in the world. Before we wrap up, we have to talk about this piece that I think is so critical. We have a ministry of presence. If you follow Jesus and he lives in you, it's through each person who has a faith in Christ in relationship with those who don't, haven't yet maybe taken that step of faith. The power of the Holy Spirit living in us means that we are now God's holy temple. We are the tabernacle that we just studied, which take a minute and get your head around that. <laughs> um, it's, that's a big one. That's a high calling. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? The glory of God, presence, present with the Israelites by a cloud in the wilderness, and that shone on Moses in the cleft of the rock, and that raised Jesus from the dead, it lives in Christ's followers. It lives in our hearts. Jesus himself told his followers, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So each of us are called to have a ministry of presence in the places where we've been planted, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, workplaces, families, any sphere of influence where we have opportunity. It's actually very critical because we are the avenue by which God's glory shows up in the world. We, we don't have a tabernacle to go to like the Israelites do. There's not a ritual we need to go and do in order to be um, for the world to see. Jesus is no longer walking the earth. His spirit in and through the lives of each Christ follower is God's plan A for sharing with the world about him. So um, about Three weeks ago, our family had a pretty unique front row experience to uh, the recent tragedy in our city, uh, which, which was involved a complicated family situation that ended in the tragic death of, of our across-the-street neighbor. In the moments that that situation was unfolding, my husband and I um, were standing in the comfort of our own home looking out across the street to um, the team of policemen coming and um, this 18-year-old boy who had come home to find his mother had, had passed and his father was there. Um, we stood there, and there was a moment where God's presence was just so profound for us, and it moved us. Um, I said to my husband, oh, you have to go to this 18-year-old boy. And it just, um, I can't shake that thought because 
he walked across the street and he just stood with him and he just put his arm around him and he, we didn't have like a long-standing relationship with this boy. We didn't know them very well. We didn't even know what he was stepping into at that moment. But he was with him. And that visual is so profound because that is what God does with us. <laughs> he just comes. He just shows up. He's just with us. And he provides his presence as a peace, and, and then he fills us. So we, were, we had the privilege of having a ministry of presence with the Holy Spirit in our hearts in that moment. But then we, we were moved to have a ministry of presence with those boys who then later came into our home and, and had to endure at, um, the moments following that tragedy it, with policemen and chaplains, and they were able to be in our home, and so our family had a ministry of presence. And, and I'm sure you all have stories where you've been moved to just go, to just step in to unknown circumstances. We felt such a peace because we lived with, in relationship with Jesus. He's the one that moved us. Um, so as I, as I think about how we are called... Um, we are called into the lives of the people around us because we're called to be his light and his love. We, like I said, we are the plan A. But the ways that that brokenness of that situation for our family, we, we didn't know what we were walking into. The brokenness of our world is not actually unknown to God. He knows. He actually knows, and he knows that in many cases it's because of our own rebellion. But he, and he, just like he knew the Israel, Israelites' hearts that day, but he went to be with them anyways, and he comes to be with us anyways. And he, he knew the world, what the world would do to his son when he sent him, and he sent him anyways. And he knows the stories about our neighbors, and he sends us, right? So what does your ministry of presence look like? If the Spirit of God lives in you, it shines forth from you into the world. In the midst of your season of life, challenging circumstances or maybe even adventures and fun and recreation God puts people in our lives and they're people who can just see that you're a set-apart people that you operate according to God's plan a, a divine plan where God dwells with you it looks different right it was said about the tabernacle that when the cloud appeared over the tabernacle the Israelites knew it was time to move locations and they packed up and they moved something like that right when the Spirit of God comes over you, do you move out of your comfortable place and into the place that he directs? I hope that we can all just take away this truth that the Spirit of God dwells in our hearts, in the heart of a Christ follower, and as we dwell in our places, the glory of God shines for all to see. So let's pray. Oh Lord, we really desperately need you. I just thank you that you are faithful to your promises. You are faithful to yourself. And your presence is not contingent upon our feelings or our circumstances. Um, that as believers in your son, you are with us. And I thank you, Lord. It is a great high calling to be your tabernacle to the world. Um, it's a humbling place to be, Lord, and yet your glory is what moves us. The cloud of your glory is what moves us. And I just thank you for the visual 
the tangible example of the tabernacle that you gave to the Israelites that we still get to look to, to um, represent our holy God, the God who we serve, the one who in his kindness came to dwell amongst us. And so today I just pray for each of my friends in this room, those that have spent time studying your word and digging into to the details and the, some hard stuff, Lord. There's some stuff our minds can't get our heads around. I just pray that you would draw us in close to you and that you would encourage our hearts and you would show us where you're calling us to dwell amongst the people that you put in our lives. So, Lord, all the glory goes to you. We thank you. In your name, amen.